Greetings, dear listeners. This is a very exciting 100th episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg. Um, this week's episode is sponsored by Donors Trust, the smart and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving without compromising your values. So, listeners, um, this is the 100th episode of the Remnant Podcast, and we wanted to do something very special. And while we normally try not to do guests outside of the studio, this was a special case. Um, our guest today is one of my true, legitimate, intellectual heroes. Um, I could list you all of his books, but I'll just simply say that uh, one, you know, when I'm often asked what books does every conservative have to read, um, Professor Tom Sowell, Thomas Sowell's uh, Conflict of Visions, I think, is canonical. Um, in on the right and needs to be read by pretty much everybody. Uh, I'm a huge fan of many of his books, uh, but I but he has been a sort of a lodestar of mine for 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 many years. Uh, Doctor Soul, welcome to the podcast. Good, good to be with you. So uh, one of the things that I, I was just reading, I've been reading uh, the latest edition, which is why you're here of of uh, discrimination and disparities, and one of the things that so it comes across in a lot of your writing, but particularly in this, is it's it's almost as if you're a visitor from Mars. And what I mean by that is that you come to a lot of social questions with no preconceived notions. You do not sort of buy in to the conventional wisdom on the right or the left about the sources of problems, the sources of, of discriminations and disparities. And so you you kind of look at everything through a fresh eye, which is very refreshing and it's sort of what what I think a lot of economists are supposed to do but very few of them actually do. So, why don't we just sort of start from the beginning? Uh what is your book about and why did you write it? Uh, I I guess uh, it, it's about the sources of disparities and especially about the fact that the, they are innumerable. Uh, I would even say inescapable whereas at different periods of history uh, people people have uh, grabbed hold of one particular source and made it the source. A uh, hundred years ago, during the Progressive Era, the Progressives took the lead uh, in making genetic determinism the source of the of uh, disparities among groups. Uh, some people have uh, tried in talking about Woodrow Wilson and his racial policies as if this was some sort of aberration for Woodrow Wilson. No, this was not an aberration for Woodrow Wilson. It was part and parcel of the entire makeup of the progressive movement uh, of that time. Uh, now, in the, at the other end of the century, end of the 20th century, you find the progressives of this era uh, now have decided that discrimination is the uh, uh, cause of, uh, uh, of, of most disparities. And again, uh, it's not uh, an argued case. It's just a prevailing presumption. And so uh, let's explore that for a little bit. One of the one of the points that comes through in the book um, very powerfully is the the role that the emphasis on social justice plays, that there's almost an, an aesthetic understanding of how the universe is supposed or life is supposed to work and it gets imposed from above. Uh, it seems to me that like one of the the core themes of this book, but also of your writing in general, is is just simply standing athwart monocausal explanations of anything. Absolutely, uh, uh, my book is not meant to deny that discrimination occurs and that it inflicts costs. I mean, there's a whole chapter on discrimination. There'd be no point having a chapter on it if it didn't have any any, any effect. So I want to read where I, I, this is more for the benefit of listeners uh, than it is for you because you know your own book, but this ties into a lot of things I've discussed on this podcast in the past, and it's a good example of this this, this visitor from Mars quality that you, you've got in some of your writing. You write in the book, for example, despite the high poverty rate among black Americans in general, the poverty rate among black married couples has been less than 10% every year since 1994. The poverty rate of married blacks is not only lower than that of blacks as a whole, but in some years has also been lower than that of whites as a whole. In 2016, for example, the poverty rate for blacks was 22%. For whites, it was 11%. In 
And for black married couples, it was seven point it was seven point five percent. Do racists care whether someone black is married or unmarried? If not, then why do married blacks escape poverty so much more often than other blacks? If racism is the main reason for black poverty, if the continuing effects of past evils such as slavery play a major causal role today, were the ancestors of today's black married couples exempt from slavery and other injustices? As far back as 1969, young black males whose homes included newspapers, magazines, and library cards, and who also had the same education as young white males, had similar incomes as their white counterparts. Do racists care whether blacks have reading material and library cards? And so what I love about this is that it 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 gets us out of it's a great example of getting us out of categorical thinking, of thinking that 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 black is a homogenous and individual term that applies uniformly to all people of a certain color of skin or a certain ethnicity. Can you sort of can you talk through some of your other favorite examples of how we tend to do this, about how we tend to put people into these large bins and say there's no distinction between the different groups within this, within who all fall under some. Well, well I, I would I would like to give examples to the contrary. Uh, one of the things I point out is that uh, among European immigrants to the United States in the 19th century, uh, it, uh, who lived on the Lower East Side of New York, as they tended to concentrate there, it was not at all uncommon for uh, both Italian and Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, on the on the Lower East Side, to be represented by Irish politicians, mm-hmm. uh, not not just in the 19th century, but into uh, the the early decades of the 20th century. I think it was in one of the Jewish neighborhoods. It was uh, 1930 before there was a Jew local a local Jewish uh, uh, political captain, and so that and so the Jewish immigration. That's like half a century uh, after the Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe uh, began. And, and 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 if you if you know something about the history of these three groups in Europe, there's no mystery as why the Irish would have had more political uh, activity and experience than either the Eastern European Jews or the Italians from Southern Italy. Yeah, so that's actually it's funny. My my dad, who I'm descended on my dad's side from, precisely those Jews from the Lower East Side. And when my dad went to Dewitt Clinton High School in the Bronx. Um, he said, you know, the the Italians and the Jews, they got into huge arguments because the Italians thought the Jews were idiots for wanting to go to more school and go to college. And the Italians said, we're going to get jobs. And the Jews thought the Italians were idiots for not wanting to get more education. It's one of these die markers of different cultural groups bringing different aspects in. I remember, I can't remember which book it was in, but you made this point, which I've quoted for years, about how it's important to look at where immigrants come from, but it's also supremely important to look at when they came from there. Yes. Uh, the country itself is changing, and the immigrants themselves are changing. So the idea that we can uh, project back into the past uh, some conditions that exist in the present or, or, or that existed at some other time uh, makes no sense. I mean, uh, uh, when, when the Germans first settled in the United States, uh, this was a predominantly, overwhelmingly agricultural country, uh, you know. Uh, by, and by the time that uh, the uh, Hispanics and the Asians were li- arriving in, in, in the United States in uh, in, in large numbers, uh, the, 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 this was a, ho- a wholly industrial and commercial society. And the, econ- the, the technological and economic level of the country, all of that go- goes into it. Uh, so so you, you you have to know the context in talking about any particular period about the past, right? And it works the other way around too. In that, if you had a Scottish immigrant in the ninth, in the eighteenth century, the nineteenth century, they would come with one set of expectations and customs. And if you took a Scottish immigrant from today, they'd probably come here and be some kind of warmed over socialist, because the countries That's they're coming right. from change too. And even in Scotland. Uh, the lowlanders had an entirely different uh, cultural development than the highlanders. And that was true not only in uh, Scotland, it was true of the Scottish immigrants to Australia and the Scottish immigrants to the United States, where the lowlanders did so much better than the highlanders. So uh, let's get back to the, 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 the crux of the book just for a little bit. Um, 
part part of the the central argument of your book is that there are two kinds of discrimination. Can you talk about what the two kinds of discrimination are? Yes, I mean, there's uh, sometimes people are referred to as having discriminating tastes, meaning that they they have an ability to understand uh, what the realities are, whether about the oh, paintings or uh, wines and so forth, and the and and. The, the other meaning of the same word is almost the opposite, namely that uh, certain people will be treated a certain way uh, based on attitudes toward, toward the group they come from, regardless of the actual qualities of the people themselves. And the second way is the way that, that, that we talk about the most and why there are anti-discrimination laws. But it, it, it uh, matters which of those things we're talking about. And in a lot of discussions, the, the two things get mixed up. Right. I mean, the, in many ways, discrimination in the, the the first sense is what you would what you want to do when you encounter somebody, which is you take them as you find them as an individual, and you judge them on their own merits. But we have this mess where the word kind of gets muddied and we actually say we're discriminating when we judge them as part of some larger whole without any individual. Well, well, well let, me, let, me, let me try, try, try to uh, <coughs> go through that again then. Uh, there, there, uh, you can break down the first kind of discrimination, which is really just an, uh, making decisions based on empirical evidence. But the empirical evidence can be evidence about the individual you're dealing with or it can be about the group that that individual belongs to. And then one of the examples that I use in the book is this controversy over whether employers should be using criminal background checks uh, and, and judging job applicants. And many people on the left believe that is wrong because uh, uh, young black males tend to ha- have more of a uh, higher percentage of them tend to have um, criminal background records, and therefore this will represent... Uh, a reduction in their ability to get a job. But when empirical research is done, they find that there are certain industries, whether banks or whatever, uh, where it, where the employer routinely does criminal background checks on everybody applying for a job. Those kinds of industries uh, employ more young black males rather than less. And, and, and the reason is uh, that they don't have to guess whether a particular young black male has a criminal background record or fear that he does and be unable to find, to, to, to find out the facts. So once the facts are available, uh, the majority of young black males who have no criminal background records uh, find better job opportunities. Um, I, I think one of the – I think it's fair to say that you are a, a fairly prominent critic of the way statistics are used and misused in public, oh, policy, yes. public policy debates. Uh, can you talk? Just talk about that for a little bit. Where you come down? Like, what? What are your? What are? What are the, some of the most egregious examples that cause you to uh, throw something well, at the well, TV I, screen? I, in, I, in, the, in the chapter on, on statistics, uh, I start off with the the, the example of uh, statistics that that are, that are completely accurate in themselves, but are completely misleading because of what's been left out. And one one of the examples uh, was a big crusade at the beginning of the. Uh, 21st century, uh, claiming that there was a large amount of uh, racial discrimination against black applicants for uh, home mortgage loans. And this became a real crusade to, to crack down. And the numbers that were thrown around included uh, some numbers from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, showing that for the most desirable kind of mortgage loans, uh, blacks were turned down at a rate twice the rate at which white applicants were turned down. And so many people grabbed that number and ran with it, and similar numbers from other sources saying the same thing. And what was left out was a comparison of the rate at which whites were turned down compared to the rates at which Asian Americans were turned down. And in fact, the very same civil rights uh, publication uh, uh, listed those those numbers, and they were never mentioned in most of the media. Uh, 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 whites are turned down for those same loans at almost double the rate for Asian Americans. And so, uh, 
and and the, one of the very few places that gave any data on on that fact was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which pointed out that the credit ratings of uh, Asian Americans were better than the credit ratings of whites, which in turn were better than the credit ratings of blacks. And so on all three of these groups, they were turned down uh, in, in, a, in uh, the same order in which their credit ratings were. <laughs> but that, that never became part of the uh, discussion uh, in most of the media. Right. I mean, presumably the banks accepted 100% of loan applications from people with truly excellent credit. Yes. Right. But the other thing is that, you know, it, it, it at least seemed plausible that the white banks were discriminating against black uh, applicants. It did not seem plausible that they were discriminating also against white applicants for, 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 for uh, these loans. And by the same token... It was, it, you would not expect black banks to be turning down blacks uh, for these loans if it was a matter of discrimination. But in point of fact, black banks turned down black applicants for those mortgages at a higher rate than the white banks did. <laughs> that also never made it into the media. Um, what do you make, just because it seems so on point for this, what, what do you make of the revelations about um, Harvard and other elite schools having a bias against Asian Americans? It so happened. I looked. I looked up that data just just last night, huh. and if I, I was for the entire Ivy League uh, for a period um, of about eight years, I think. And uh, the percentage of Asian Americans admitted to every one of those colleges in every one of those years varied only between fourteen percent and nineteen percent, and usually they were clustered tighter than that. Mm-hmm. So the, the, these kinds of coincidences don't go on for years without there being quotas. Right. I, I have a theory about the Asian discrimination, which is that the Asian students tend to be the either immigrants or the children of immigrants, and they're bringing with them that Asian immigrant bias towards STEM professions, towards getting an education for a job, and they well, don't... Hard work. Right, and th- so they're not they're not fluent in the shibboleths of uh-huh. sort of social justice and yes, and so I-, I suspect that if you were an Asian American student who wanted to be a uh, French poetry major or an environmental studies major, and you could speak fluently in the language of sort of the progressive left, they would accept you. Um, but what they don't want is to become technical schools where kids are actually just interested in getting an education because that's not how the universities see themselves anymore. Absolutely. And again, just recently I came across some data uh, on that as well. You know, as you may know, the, the New York Times is making a big to-do of, about the fact that uh, blacks are so grossly underrepresented amongst students admitted to Stuyvesant High School. Right. Asians grossly overrepresented. And the data I came across recently are from 1971 in the New York Times, of all places, when black students outnumbered Asian students at Stuyvesant, at Bronx Science, at Brooklyn Tech. And I think, I think what you said about Asian immigrants, uh, in 1971, there weren't that many Asian immigrants. Mm-hmm. Don't forget the, the, the immigration laws were changed only in 1965. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you didn't have any um, big amount of chain, immigra- chain migration at that time. Uh, but that's the other thing too. People talk about certain numbers as if they're set in concrete. Uh, nobody, nobody today expects blacks to outnumber uh, uh, Asians in these kinds of schools. More importantly, the explanations for why blacks are underrepresented go completely counter to the trends. Uh, blacks were ten percent of all the students at Stuyvesant High School in 1971. They they are now some fraction of one percent. Hmm. And over a 30-year period, I forget, somewhere in the 70s and to, to uh, 19, 2010 or thereabouts, the proportion of blacks uh, entering Stuyvesant High School fell to less than, less than 10% of what they had been 30 years earlier. Hmm. And so this long period of retrogression occurred at a time when the welfare state and all of that was making life uh, easier rather than harder. But there were other trends set off by the uh, uh, political atmosphere and whatnot 
uh, that were going on at the same time. And I think those things were detrimental. Sure. I mean, it does seem, I mean, just to put on my Tom Soul hat for a second, it could also, part of that could be explained by the fact that the successful married bourgeois, you know, black families moved out of the city. Yes. And took those values and those kinds of students with them. Yes. So what what do you think? So Bill de Blasio wants to change the test for for Stuyvesant so that it can boost, you know, so that it can get a more diverse student body. What what do you think about efforts like that? I think they are either enormously naive or enormously cynical. I lean toward enormously cynical. Uh, I can see the benefits to Bill de Blasio from doing that. I do not see any benefits to black students, white students, or Asian students from that. Uh, the research that I've done, not only in the United States but in other countries, indicates that when you bring in students who, who are not up to the same standards as the other students, uh, you, you take students who may be fine and have every prospect of success, and you artificially turn them into failures by putting them in circumstances where they cannot learn at the pace at which the material is presented and in the complexity with which it's presented, but where they could learn with ease in, in, in schools that don't have quite the same uh, speed uh, and complexity in, in, in the work they present. Um, There's empirical evidence to back that up. You've written a lot about that, about, about higher education, about you take these kids who would do just fine at, you know, the University of Wisconsin, and you put them in MIT, and it makes them feel inadequate, even though they're probably smarter than most of the kids at the University of Wisconsin. Yes, yes. Uh, Years ago, there was a study at MIT. The average black student at MIT was at the 90th percentile, but the average uh, uh, other student at MIT was at the 99th percentile. So the black students at MIT were having a heck of a time keeping up. Right. Uh, people from any racial or ethnic group, the great majority would not be able to make it at MIT. I mean, we're talking about the, the top one quarter of a 1% of the population is ready for places like MIT and Caltech. And I was, I was pleased when my son is one of those with uh, uh, math scores in the, in the low 90, 90th percentile. And he, thank heaven he was turned down by Harvey Mudd College, which is really uh, in the same level with MIT and Caltech, though it's not as well known. Mm-hmm. And I had respect for them that they didn't say, oh, here's a chance to have a black student with high math scores. And no, that uh, he, he, he's going to be trailing the pack and, and getting lost in learning material that he could easily lost, get easily learn uh, if he was in a, a, a place where the pace of the work was... was suitable for his his level of understanding. So uh, let's broaden this out just a little bit. You know, one of the things that you often hear, uh, you hear phrases like systemic racism or the notion that capitalism is inherently racist. Do you think there are, do you think there are examples, I mean, obviously slavery was systemically racist. It was a system of, you know, institutionalized. Actually, actually, Slavery bred racism. The racism didn't breed slavery. Explain that, that a little is, bit. Slavery was ubiquitous uh, for thousands of years of recorded history. When Adam Smith wrote in 1776, he said that Western Europe was the only place in the world where slavery had been abolished. So slavery was the norm for the vast majority of the history of the human species. And it enslaved people of every race, color you can, you can name. In the United States, it was necessary to have more racism to justify slavery because freedom was what the country was founded on. And so you have to come up with some reason why there's some people who are not free. And so that that, that did encourage racism to a far greater extent than, say, in Brazil, where there was no such tradition of freedom. And so there was no need for such excuses. No, that, that, I, I, I quote you often on the larger point about slavery being a, a central institution of mankind, at least since the agricultural revolution. Uh, I was talking primarily about American slavery, but I take your point. I mean, there's, I read a fascinating paper by uh, Michael Munger a few, a year or so ago about how the Southerners had to switch 
to um, uh, from the Roman understanding of slavery to the Aristotelian understanding of slavery to argue that that slaves were slaves by nature rather than yeah. by circumstance to in order to c- continue to justify um, the institution. So that's a good point. I, I probably should have been more precise about it. Uh, but the larger question is. What what are what are areas where you think you can make um, systemic indictments of capitalism or the free market, however you want to put it, that you do think have some legitimacy, legitimacy, even if they're overblown, or is it is is there is there nothing is there no generalization about capitalism that you think actually withstands empirical scrutiny? I would have to review a tremendous amount of literature to find and find uh, uh, example that I haven't done that. But uh, again, the very presumption, without evidence, that some one cause is 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 the major cause, is what what is maddening. There is all sorts of things might be uh, causes. I mean, I I never dreamed that the order in which children were born was a cause of inequality. Until I began to study the literature on this and discovered, you know, that the uh, the firstborn has uh, all sorts of advantages over the children born after him, mm-hmm. and the and the only child has uh, advantages even over the firstborn. So I, I don't I don't know exactly how to put this, but this this approach, which I find fascinating and I love reading, it's the enemy of generalization, right? Uh, everything is complicated. Everything has you have to look at thing, that things in their particulars to understand them, which I, I generally agree with. But what should policymakers take away from that kind of approach? Because it seems to me that sort of technocratic progressive approach is to is is to take the wrong lesson. Um, you know, the high the Hayekian position is everything is complicated and things are best understood closest to the problem. And you have this knowledge problem that centralized planners can never get over. But the the technocratic progressive view looks at the same you know presentation of data and says, "Aha! That means we need more power to fine tune our economic planning." What is, what is your general rule of thumb for how policymakers should look at the fact that life is as complicated as as you present it? Well, the term fine-tuning was once uh, enormously popular among some economists. And uh, the data intended to show that uh, they were lucky to get the right channel, much less (laughs) fine-tuning. You know, but uh, it's it's hard to make just a quick generalization uh, about that. But uh, you put your finger on one of the main problems, which is the knowledge problem. And and more general, general than that, and in, in listening to some of the social justice uh, talk, uh, the question they never seem to ask, and this includes from Rawls on down, uh, is not whether something, some situation would be desirable, but can we do it? It may be, the situation may be wonderful that they're trying to produce, but if we can't do it, then at the very least, let us know that to begin with so we don't raise hopes that can never be realized. Uh, and create great frustrations in the present, which can tear apart a whole society. When you, when, when, when you are told that the system is rigged, and that what, you, what, what, what your efforts will be thwarted by people at the top who are trying to keep you down, I mean, that makes life much worse in the present. Uh, not only in the sense that people have less incentive to improve them, their own skills, uh, but also there is far more resentment and far more rejection of the whole moral structure of society. And this has occurred on both sides of the Atlantic with disastrous consequences for, for human conduct, as I go into at some length in the new chapter in the new book. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that uh, um, a little bit, because one of the things I, I, I loved about the book, I, I have this view of identity politics as as a as a, as an ancient human construct that it you know er, by my lights aristocracy was one of the first forms of identity politics it basically just said that there were certain people of noble blood or of noble birth that pass on their noble traits intergenerationally and therefore they are better than other people simply by an accident of birth 
Um, yeah. and, you, and you talk about it in, in great deal about the, the problem with assigning blame for historical deeds to people alive today. Yes, yeah, so that, that, uh, if you assume that they're that in the nature of things, there would be equal opportunity for all. And then, then you, you have to set out to find what is thwarting this natural condition. Uh, and and uh, people who have, in fact, studied societies around the world and down through history uh, again and again come up saying uh, that nowhere can they find this equality or proportionality uh, of groups represented in various activities. And, 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 and I've challenged the people on the other side, give me just one example anywhere in the last thousand years of human history, anywhere in the world where groups were proportionally represented in some activity where there's free competition. Uh, you know, whites are not uh, uh, proportionally represented in professional basketball. Uh, I don't believe that people from Florida and California are proportionally represented among hockey players, <laughs> uh, I, I, almost half of whom are, are Canadians. You know, I mean, none, there are so many factors out there that for all those factors to come together just right to make those groups have be the same is it, staggering. But um, so I, one of the one of the points I was trying to get at was this this argument that you make about how um, if my ancestors visited some evil on your ancestors, that somehow I am in the dock. You know that I, I that I have a that there's intergenerational culpability or guilt that yes. should be ascribed, um, and you're you're a pretty passionate opponent of that kind of thinking. Do you think that we're ever going to get past that, or is this this a problem that's only going to get worse? It it, it will get worse if we keep rewarding it. I, this whole thing about reparations is even more ridiculous than that. I mean. You realize how many millions of, of uh, European immigrants came to the United States after the Civil War. Right. I, I don't see how you're going to try to force their descendants to pay for what happened in the South while they were still in Europe struggling to try to try to stay alive. Uh, even within the South. The vast majority of Southerners own no slaves. I mean, one adult male slave costs more than the average white Southerner made in a year. It's not like they were all living in uh, uh, plantations like in Gone with the Wind. You know, uh, they were living a lot more modestly than that, and they and, and uh, buying a slave was really not on their horizon. So, I mean, one of the arguments that you hear. Um, in favor of the on the reparations thing is, hey, look, you know, if my ancestor was, had their house expropriated or their factory expropriated, I'm enti- I'm entitled to those to compensation. That was, my property rights were violated. The 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 blacks who were slaves, their property rights were violated too. And um, why? Because your labor, in the Lockean sense, is the fruits of your labor, and your, your labor is the first thing that you own as an economic activity. Why shouldn't their descendants be compensated, even if it's unfair to a recent immigrant from China or from Spain who has has no ancestors? Corporately, the state or the gov or the, you know, the the country committed these sins. I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but I'm just curious what your reaction would be to that. Again, the question should be, the first question to ask is, can you do it? And if you can't do it, I don't know why we're talking about it. Right. I mean, if you had an absolute totalitarian dictatorship, you still couldn't do it because you don't have the knowledge of who owned slaves and who didn't own slaves. Uh, I mean, and you, you could take this all the way, I don't know how many centuries you go back. I mean, all over the world, injustice has been absolutely pervasive. Think, think of all the Jews who were expelled from Spain and forced out and forced to leave their wealth behind and, and go elsewhere. Uh, the Huguenots who had to flee France. The, the, oh, injustices of that sort have been so common around the world. I mean, you, 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 you could throw a dart at a map of the world 
and go again, go read up on the history of wherever that dot landed, and you will find all kinds of injustices. And 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 do we, and where do we find these creatures from some other galaxy who are capable of sorting this out and finding out who who got who got what from whom? The the other argument that is that that really doesn't stand up is the argument from what, what current generations uh, are suffering as a result of what happened in the past. Uh, black Americans have a standard of living higher than the, that of blacks in any country in on the, on the African continent. Now, if you're going to talk about compensating for for, for, for what uh, for where people would have been but for this or that incident. Uh, you would then end up with the uh, a grotesque conclusion that the, that the descendants of slaves should be paying the, the whites of the country, which would be uh, you know asinine beyond words. But again, you, you, if you can't do it, at the very least, don't tear a whole society apart talking about doing it. Okay, before I get to my next question, I want to get to this one. There's been a question going around of whether donor-advised funds are always are safe for conservatives, lovers of liberty, and other people who care about the political values of, of the places that they contribute to. And it is true that some of the bigger national donor-advised funds don't always share the values of the people that are giving them their money. But donor-advised funds are still a terrific tool for your charitable giving. You just need the right partner. That's why there's Donors Trust. You've heard me talk about Donors Trust before. Donors Trust is unique among donor-advised funds because it was built with you in mind. Someone who believes that limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise are bedrock values worth fighting for. If you aren't familiar with donor-advised funds, you can think of it as your personal charitable savings account. It's a great tool for maximizing your charitable tax benefits while offering a simpler way to give. Donors Trust is more than a way to give. It's a partner that understands your values and works with charitable givers of all sizes across the country. The team from Donors Trust will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. See if a donor advised fund with Donors Trust is right for you. Remnant listeners can receive their free prospectus at donorstrust.org/dingo. Do your charitable giving the smart way with a partner that shares your values. Donors Trust. Learn more at DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. And let me just say, while I think Donors Trust is fantastic for people who share basically my philosophical point of view, um, I understand that we have lots of listeners who don't share my philosophical point of view. And maybe you should check out Donors Trust too, um, or not. Uh, I just want to be clear that we delight in the fact that we have a very ecumenical audience. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, Two people who I've had on this podcast, uh, one of them is a close friend of mine, Charles Murray, um, but also uh, Brian Kaplan. They've argued that parents don't have that much of an impact on how their kids turn out. Wow. And I, I... I just viscerally, I reject this. <laughs> um, and when I was reading your book, you know, the, 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 the passage I read about married couples, married black couples being of, of, uh, out, of the, out of poverty and all of the rest, everything that we know about the benefits of marriage se- seemed to indicate that that just cannot be true. And I was just wondering where you came down on all of that. I come down in total opposition. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, there are, there are more studies that I can cite uh, showing that that's true. My gosh, at a personal level, when I was doing research on on the birth order of children, I thought of my own life. Uh, my parents both died young. Uh, had they lived, I would have been a sixth child born in the Jim Crow South. I probably wouldn't have had a snowball's chance in hell. As it, so, as it so happens, uh, I was raised by a family where, the, where I was an only child, and there were four adults. And so I was the center of attention from, from infancy on into my early years, which are the formative years. And I think that did more for me than any other single factor in my life. The people who raised me did not have education or money, but they had what so many uh, studies have shown is crucial the attention that the child gets in those early years and uh, uh, 
so so and then there, then there are all these differences my gosh that uh, profession and professional families families where the parents have professions the children grow up hearing more than three times as many words per hour as the children of families on welfare moreover the words they hear in the where the parents are professionals are overwhelmingly positive words and in family on welfare the words they hear are negative more so than positive and that's aside from all the other differences in child rearing practices you can't tell me that someone who spends the first 15 or 20 years of their lives in these kinds of radically different circumstances uh, don't end up different well, I'm just on nutrition uh, experiments have been done, medical experiments have been done where uh, two sets of parents uh, are given uh, nutritional supplements of a certain sort and the other are given the placebos. The ones with the genuine uh, supplements have been, their kids when they're old enough to take IQ tests score about eight points higher on average uh, on the IQ test. I mean, there's just, there's almost endless data saying, yes, it does. This is music to my ears because I keep <laughs> I keep getting into these arguments with them. But since you brought up the, uh, families on welfare, you argue that the, the the welfare system or the welfare state is implicitly anti-family. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, I think just 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 the statistics show that that the rise of the of the welfare state has caused a huge increase. And the number of uh, children raised without a father present. Now, the blacks have been a central center of discussion about this, starting with the Moynihan Report. Uh, but it's also true among whites. The whites have the same thing to a lesser extent. But uh, uh, in Britain, for example, for most of the 20th century, the uh, percentage of children raised without a father present uh, was under was under ten percent until the early nineteen sixties. Uh, it is now forty percent in Britain. It is forty uh, percent in Iceland. It's forty percent or more in a number of Western countries. And it's not due to modernization because in modern Asian countries you don't have that. In in, in South Korea, for example, the percentage of children, uh, uh, the, the number number of children. Uh, uh, who have uh, a raise without a father present uh, is is one out of every sixty uh, some uh, families. Hmm. Now that is an enormous advantage for them. So stipulating your sort of we can call it soul, soul's law that if you can't do anything about it, maybe it doesn't make sense to talk about it. But do you think that if the government could do something about it, that the single best thing to improve the poverty rate and other social problems would to be to invigorate families. Is is it is it to, to do what to to help families? That if depends it, on what you call help. I mean, a lot of a lot of what has been called help is harm. Right. I guess my my question is. But so in other words, it's by by definition, it's, it's, it would be better to help them. But the problem is what what is help and what is harm? Right. So what do you what do you think about some you know my colleague Ramesh Panuru he wants more pro natalist policies that help family you know bigger child tax deduction that kind of stuff where do you come down on the, on those kinds of dare I say fine tuning economic ideas Oh the I the very idea that people think they can fine tune is uh enough in my mind to just to at the very least uh raise very serious questions You'd have to know what are the specifics, as they always say, the devil's in the details. Uh, I think I, I think that uh, you know, public schools are a good idea, but uh, it depends on how how you execute them. Mm-hmm. So, are you against, say, a a, a much more generous uh, child tax credit? Well, if you're going to have a child tax credit, it should bear some reasonable relationship to the actual cost of raising a child. And I suspect that that cost is underestimated uh, by the people who do that now. So, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a passionate believer in is this idea, I, I say this all the time, is that 
complexity is a subsidy, that the more complex you make society, the, the easier you make it for people with abundant resources to get around the hurdles and, um, and game the system in effect. Uh, absolutely, there's absolutely no question about that. Uh, the more in businesses that you make the business complex, the more, the more advantage you give to the big corporation over the small business owner. I mean, the big corporation can hire a team of lawyers, and uh, the cost of those lawyers in proportion to the, out, to the sales or output of that business is very small. But if someone has a corner hardware store and uh, he has to hire one lawyer, I mean, the cost of that one lawyer spread over his relatively small output is going to be much larger. So, is it? So, I want, I want to change gears a little bit. If you don't, if if you have a problem with the, the questions, it's, that's fine. We can skip it. But for years, I used to make this point that when you're among conservatives, that when you talked about conservative economics, you were also talking about libertarian economics. You know, libertarians would invoke. Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and Tom Sowell. So would conservatives. Today, it does seem like there is a a growing distinction between what conservative economics looks like and what libertarian economics looks like. Uh, we're seeing protectionism as more popular than ever among Republicans. You've got some conservatives in favor of single-payer health care or a more aggressive social insurance system. Do you see that split happening um, does it worry you, or am I just completely wrong on this? No, no. I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this is the problem with words. If, if people believe in those kind of things, I'm not sure they should be classified as conservative. But uh, aside from nomenclature, right. uh, I, I, I think there, there is a, a certain sense in which the pervasive left ideas sort of wear down people. I think of it in the, in the way that the Colorado River wore down the, the Grand Canyon. That uh, it just that you 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 want to agree with somebody with something else and show that you're not hidebound and so on, and so you go along with things that are really are completely incompatible with the, with the principles that you're talking about. So, would you say it's fair to say that you're both a conservative economist and a libertarian economist because the differences there are so? Oh, I, I, I never, I, I, I never even bother uh, with those things. <laughs> I, I, I call, I call them as I see them, as the, as the umpires are supposed to do. Fair enough. So, but let me ask it this way then: um, Are there areas of public policy where you would say you're sort of? Uh, off the libertarian reservation that make your libertarian friends? Is, did you ever take positions that made Milton Friedman very angry with you? No. When I, when I was a student of Milton Friedman, I was a Marxist. <laughs> he knew it, and I knew it. I, I don't think he ever made the slightest attempt to change my mind. Uh, but It's you, ironic. People talk about, you know, uh, freedom on, on campus. I was a Marxist at the height of the McCarthy era in the 1950s. <laughs> Nobody gave me half the hassles at any institution of higher learning that I attended, and there were four of them, uh, 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 about that compared to what conservatives get on campuses across the country today. What do you, uh, you know, just out of curiosity, what do you think about the current state of higher education? Do you think it makes sense the way we talk about how everybody has to go to college? No, it does not. Uh, in fact, I, I would argue that uh, it doesn't make sense to force everybody to stay in school till they're 18. I think one of the problems of the schools that they create or exacerbate is having people in there who have no desire to be there, who have, uh, I'm thinking now in high school, they, they have no desire to be there, they have uh, no, no no goal for themselves in their lives that is served by their being there. Uh, it's just that the law forces them to be there, and it, it it brings the law itself into contempt with the hypocrisy that this is helping them. Um, this is not a new idea of mine. I, Ed Banfield I wrote about this back in the 1960s, and so he cited some studies that uh, when the, you know kids in the 10th or 11th grade. Not learning anything, 
or he's not getting anything that's really beneficial to him, and yet the law forces him to be there. And so uh, it's not surprising that many such kids uh, develop a complete alienation from the whole society that practices such hypocrisy at their expense. Speaking of alienation from society, I know we're, we're getting to the end here, but what do you make of the newfound popularity of what people believe to be socialism from people like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, the newfound love of social democracy or socialism as represented by people like Bernie Sanders? Oh, I think it's a, a, a staggering that this is all happening at a time that when people like and people in Venezuela, which is a country with the abundant natural resources, by the way, far more so than, say, Japan or Switzerland, but, but where people have been brought by socialism to the point where, the, where they, are, they, they, they are lacking food, where the, where the electricity is going off, where medical supplies are running out, where people are desperately fleeing into other countries uh, that are by no means always uh, uh, prosperous themselves, but which are, you know, a big improvement over Venezuela. I remember Freedom, uh, Milton Friedman once saying that if the government took over the Sahara Desert, there would be a shortage of, of sand. <laughs> and and that's, that's what has happened in Venezuela. I, I, was, I was all for, uh, uh, I was a Marxist in my 20s. And, the, the, and people ask me, how, how did uh, you change from that? Very simple. In my 20s, I hadn't done the research that I've done since then. And once you, once you start talking about facts instead of wonderful-sounding ideas, suddenly uh, all of this stuff, you see that the, the, these things that sound so good don't work out. They, they've never worked out. Well, you, I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> and I remember when, very late in life, I, I visited Russia, and as the, and as the ship came in, I looked at the apartment buildings there, and the first thing that crossed my mind was, I have seen better apartment buildings than this, boarded up in the South Bronx. <laughs> and, and the Soviet Union was one of the most heavily endowed nations on Earth, if not the most heavily endowed, in a whole range of natural resources. So that wasn't the problem. The problem was that system they had that... Uh, you, that People by the millions were under Stalin, starving to death in a country with some of the most fertile land on the face of the earth. But um, I, I look, I, I agree with that entirely. But when you talk to young socialists or people who call themselves socialists, because I think a lot of them have no idea what socialism actually is. But when you talk to them, they don't point to Venezuela. They don't point to the Soviet Union. They point to what they think is the system in Scandinavia and Denmark or Sweden. And that is not socialism. I, I agree, but that's the part of the problem. Why, well, you, why don't you explain it? <laughs> well, socialism is, is the public ownership or control of the means of production. That's not Sweden or Denmark. Uh, it's a country where, where they have high tax rates and buy a lot of goods through the, through the government rather than through the market. Uh, you, we can debate that. I mean, when you, when you have a country the size of Sweden, rich in natural resources, and with fewer people than in the New York metropolitan area, I mean, the total population of Sweden uh, is less than the total population of the New York City metropolitan area. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, it's not, not, not miraculous that they do well. Isn't it possible, uh, just talking about Scandinavia for a second, that it always seemed to me that ethnic hom homogeneity, that when you have um, a very large monolithic ethnically um, ethnic society, socialism is an easier argument to make for people psychologically? Oh, absolutely. It's, well, so many things are easier. I mean, you don't, you don't have uh, uh, people like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson to keep people riled up. I think that, that, that's one of the big... Uh, advantage that all the Scandinavian countries had. They are now uh, uh, feeling the consequences of having let in great numbers of people, not great numbers, an absolute number, because they, their own populations are so small, but, but even a moderate uh, uh, entry of uh, people from the Middle East and other, other areas very different from Europe uh, has, has raised enormous problems uh, of crime, uh, welfare dependency and, so, and, and other things. You know, homogeneity, 
we hear this word diversity repeated so much that we become like Pavlov's dog. We respond to certain sounds, uh, <laughs> irrespective of thinking about what they're really saying. And uh, I, I wonder, how do people who believe in diversity explain Japan, which is one of the most homogeneous populations in the world? And they say, you know, we must have diversity in order to have good education. Well, they don't have diversity in Japan. And on international tests, their their students always out, outdo American students. So just to sort of close things, I want to say how delighted we are here to have you on the show. Um, so you've been easing into retirement. Just out of curiosity, how is that going? How do you like it? You know, I miss your comment. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sure that that... Uh, what notion must sound particularly ironic to my research assistants. <laughs> my goodness, I last night I was I was so I was I was touched with all when I got an email from one of my assistants who's been working on some problem, and the email was de- uh, uh, dated one thirty a.m. <laughs> you know, and so I I, I don't don't imagine that the, my my assistants. And I don't demand that of them. Uh, in fact, I was just—I felt terrible <laughs> when, I, when, I, when, I, when I saw that uh, dateline on the email. Uh, no, uh, no uh, I am not easing, easing into retirement. Uh, I'm, I'm work as hard as ever. But you gave up—you—you you, you gave up your column. I gave up my column because I realized that uh, I, I had uh, just too many things that that that, uh, that I have to do. And that, that, that uh, as, as I get older, I am, you know, I, I don't have the energy I had when I was younger, and I can't make up uh, for all of it just by working my research assistants harder. Oh, you can give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doctor Soul, I, I really want to thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan, and um, and please keep working because we want more books from you. Fine, and thank you for having me. Sure, thank you. So that was uh, Tom Soul. I would say Tom Soul's left the building, but I think he's still in the building where he recorded that. He was in his home. Jack, what'd you think of that? Wow. I mean, <laughs> I, I, uh, I've known about Tom Thomas Soul for a long time. Um, my hometown newspaper it was one. Of, he was one of the conservatives that my hometown newspaper would actually syndicate, uh-huh. um, and that's where I mean. So he's probably one of the first. Uh, writers on the right, I actually even read along with uh, like Walter Williams and George Will, and I know I didn't actually meet him, but I got to listen to him talk for an hour, and that yeah. was. I mean, he's he's eighty 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 eight or eighty nine years old, and doesn't aside from like slight changes in his voice. I mean, I in in, in helping prepare you for this, I watched videos him of him from as far back as nineteen eighty one, yeah, and it just. It seemed to me that he had lost none of his edge or none of his recall or none of his uh, just command of facts or um, approach to empiricism. It's just all there, and it's – I was just – Yeah, it was fun. I yeah. mean, I, I'm, I'm glad we did it. Um, there was, as we were saying just before we turned the mics back on, there was a bit of a Tyler Cowen problem in that he's very concise. Right. And doesn't give you a lot – I mean, th- this is a problem I have when I talk to a lot of people who I agree with on a lot of things. It's like <laughs> hard to figure out how to turn it into a conversation when we agree on everything. But, uh-huh. but I just thought it was a treat to do, and I, I'm, I'm really glad that he could come on. And, I, you know, I had read the earlier version of this book years ago, and I was going through it for this. And um, you forget he's how useful – it's it's – sounds condescending but it's not you know he's a incredibly useful writer right you because mm-hmm. he's one of these guys who just gives you all of these factoids and data sets and ways to think about things that are so empirical that you can use them in a conversation with somebody else you know um yep in a way that you know some other people who are so theoretical don't so anyway thanks again to dr soul for coming on and um this is the hundredth well this is episode 100 right of the podcast episode number 100 um but as as many longtime listeners know um there were some issues with episode 11 that we don't really talk about very much yeah 
Um, Don't bring it up. So there is a debate about whether or not this is in fact episode 100 or episode 99. Um, We are not going to convene some Council of Nicaea to figure this issue out. But for those purists out there who think this is episode 99 and not episode 100, we have decided that we're going to also have a very special episode 101. But we will not tell you what that is yet either, just in case one, it sort of falls through. And uh, two, we want to keep the, the excitement alive and the anticipation alive. So, um, but it is, it is someone who, if, if, it all, if it holds, it may not, you know, schedules get messed up. If it holds, it is someone I've been asked to have on this podcast many, 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 many times. So there's that. Bigfoot. So I saw on <laughs> um, I saw on the interwebs I retweeted it uh, that you wrote a seven thousand word essay or blog post about your Boston Marathon prep. Yep, or not the prep, the whole thing. The whole like, thing. Uh, the whole process, kind of. So I, it, it's sort of it's probably similar to how you feel after writing a G file uh-huh. uh, of perhaps an unusual length because I just wrote it all at once, even though I'd been thinking about it for a while uh-huh. um, since, since the race ended. Um, I've never written a 7,000-word G-file. I know it feels like it sometimes. No, no. Well, how, what's the longest they get? They get to like 4,000. I've hit 4,000, I think, if you include the canine update and all the rest of that. <laughs> so. um, but yeah, I, I, I guess this is now a part of my brand. Uh, I've been doing this kind of thing in the past, but it was just not... I didn't have... Uh, random individuals on the internet who cared about about it, but now I do. So yeah, there you go. It, it'll be in the show notes and everything. I know that's why I brought it up. <laughs> put it in the show notes. Um, I have not read it. I figure I've heard all I needed to about the Boston Marathon, and you got the Cliff's Notes version. Yeah, if there was if there was anything I truly needed to know about it, you would have told me by now. That you know, because but maybe not. You know, other people who are more I, interested in running than I am. So, did I mention the guy I had to kill at the top of Heartbreak Hill? No, and also you didn't. You didn't tell me that you were running while taking notes. <laughs> um, I'm always taking notes, whether I'm writing anything down or not. Just everyone who everyone who ever interacts with me should keep that in mind. Um, and oh, so on, on another note, um, some listeners have been wondering when we're going to get into the weeds on. Uh, the final season of Game of Thrones. Uh, I will probably do that. I know we're going to talk about it a little bit on, <sighs> on Glop. Channeling um, Rob Long there. Yeah, but uh, you know, maybe we'll get David French in here to, to talk about it. Um, and uh, I don't know that we have anything else really to talk about. I have, I have to get this piece for the magazine done, and I have a conference call because my life is about conference calls now. And Oh, are you there? Oh, yeah. Oh. And um, uh, so I think that's it. We're done, right? And is, is there anything else vital we have to talk about or we have to mention? Keep uh, the reviews coming, you know, all that stuff. It really is helpful. Word of mouth is really, really important. Um, hey, don't, when you say that, you discriminate against telepathic listeners. I do. Uh, um, so if any of you, any telepathic listeners out there, you can also spread a word of mind. Uh-huh. Um, that's equally valid, if slightly creepier. See, I think... Do you know you know you know the Occam's razor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I use it to shave in the morning. Uh, and colloquially, it's it's captured by that expression when you hear, hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, right? The or or in or Satan in some some European folklore traditions. Yeah, but that, that, that you're getting to my point, which is that the simplest explanation is usually the best. The simplest thing. So when I said word of mouth is good, and you immediately went to telepathy rather than pointing out that I was perhaps um, being unfair to the deaf who don't use words of mouth. They use words of hand um, or, oh, yeah, I guess. you know, there's a lot there are other things short of telepathy um, that I could have been corrected on. But I guess, you go yeah. where you got to go. I, I go where my mind is already yeah. in the minds of all those around me. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Um, I'm very excited about the new Avengers movie. It's supposed to be very good. You know, when Kyle Smith says it's great, it's a good sign. Uh huh. So maybe we'll do a little talking about that on the next episode. I will. Pri- I will prioritize seeing that as soon as I possibly can. Although it is sold out in almost every DC area theater for its opening weekend. Is I would really? have to go to like a 9 a.m. Sunday showing <laughs> to get a single seat. Oh, is it really? I haven't even looked. My, my, no, my, you're gonna have to wait. Wait, yeah. My daughter's gonna be pissed. Um. 
All right. So uh, thanks again to uh, Professor Soul. Thank you, Jack. Uh, thank you, listeners. Oh, I, I should mention, I, I really liked what uh, what he was saying near the end about treating his research assistants better. That was um, that was interesting. Yeah, I can't. I I cannot recall the last time I got an email from you at one thirty in the morning. No, that's true. Um, um and uh, you know, how'd you like those days off to go run the Boston Marathon? <laughs> oh, you treat me well. I was just uh, you. You were looking at me funny while he was saying that. Well, I was I was actually agonizing about whether or not I should make a mushroom manage mushroom theory of management joke. Oh, <laughs> um, but I didn't think he would find it as amusing. But, um, um. All right. I'm sorry. I'm saying I'm a lot because I am so frazzled. And uh, thanks again to everybody at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. Uh, get the word out. We really appreciate it. And um, we'll see you next time. No, you're on this podcast.